Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments of mental illness. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as better educating the general public about mental health issues. All that delivered to you with the experience of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and without the hype and distortion of other media sources. Welcome back. I appreciate your tuning into this podcast, which was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday, August 17th, 2016. Well, <clears throat> to start off tonight's podcast, a lot of my middle-aged and older patients in my practice are very concerned about their memory Of course, memory does start to change as we get older, and that's a normal process. It does not mean that people who notice these changes are suffering from or are going to suffer from dementia. Uh, It turns out short-term memory starts to decline as early as age 40, and remembering names is the first thing to go. So uh, if you're in that situation, please don't worry. No need to be concerned you're coming down with dementia. Nonetheless, uh, people do wonder what, if anything, they can do to help preserve their memory. And, you know, we know there are some very specific concrete things that work. Uh, There's actually a fairly short list of things that are shown by research to work, taking good care of your brain by having good blood pressure, good blood sugar, good cholesterol, um, keeping uh, your weight down, exercising regularly. Notice that those are all the same things that help take good care of your heart. That's not a coincidence. Uh, We know all of those things help stave off the onset of dementia. Uh, So regular exercise is key. And also being socially active has been shown to be something that helps to stave off dementia. Uh, So even if you don't have a big social sphere, uh, get out and around people, maybe do some volunteer work or go to your local house of worship if you belong to one or are so inclined. Something to be out and around and interacting with people is also helpful. And then there's the question of these brain training games, uh, whether we're talking about video games on online, on certain websites, uh, or even then in the uh, <coughs> uh, game playing handheld consoles uh, that <coughs> your kids and grandkids may be using. Also, some of them have some memory training games. Uh, The research up until now has been mixed on those. For the most part, there really was not enough solid research 
to say, okay, you know what, play these games and this is definitely going to improve your memory and stave off the risk of dementia. So when I saw this article, it said specific brain training reduces dementia risk across 10 years. That seemed pretty significant. Uh, definitely wanted to bring that to you. And especially when you consider the source of being the American Psychological Association, uh, so fairly legitimate and certainly not industry-inspired, and certainly from a source that would be skeptical of anything that was just industry-sponsored uh, or inspired. So let's see what they had to say. Uh, and while many companies have long promised that their brain training products can sharpen aging minds, only one type of computerized brain training so far has been shown to improve people's mental quickness and significantly reduce the risk of dementia. This was according to research presented at the American Psychological Association's annual convention. <clears throat> the, uh, the presenter was quoted as saying, the mistake some people make is thinking that all brain training is the same. Uh, some of them work, some do not. So their point being that to conclude that brain training doesn't work or is not yet proven is not an accurate analysis. <clears throat> you have to look at some specific programs. Now, because of this lack of targeted analysis, uh, <clears throat> the researchers looked at studies focused on the effectiveness of a specific brain training exercise called speed of processing training, also known as useful field of view training. Uh, they completed a systematic review and a meta-analysis of more than 50 peer-reviewed research papers examining speed of processing training. And in addition to this meta-analysis, the team released their findings from their active study, active standing for Advanced Cognitive Training for Independent and Vital Elderly. This study, which was presented uh, last week, found that older adults' risk for dementia was reduced by 48% over 10 years when they completed 11 or more sessions of this brain training technique. Specifically, the risk of dementia was reduced by 8% for each session of speed processing training completed. This highly specific exercise is designed to improve the speed and accuracy of visual attention or someone's mental quickness. For example, during one task, a person must identify an object, for example, a car or a truck, at the center of a screen while locating a target, such as another car, in his or her peripheral vision. As people practice the task, the time it takes them to locate the peripheral object gets shorter and shorter, even as the objects become harder to distinguish. In more difficult tasks, the peripheral target is surrounded by distracting objects, forcing the person to work harder to stay focused. 
Participants who completed the speed of processing training experienced improved performance across standard cognitive or attention, behavioral, which includes depressive symptoms and feelings of control, functional, which includes health-related quality of life and functional performance, and real-world measures, such as driving and their predicted health care costs. <clears throat> the speed of processing research around driving is a concrete example of how this training generalizes to everyday activities. Studies have shown the speed of processing training resulted in improvement in reaction time, yielding another 22 feet of stopping distance at 55 miles per hour and a 36% decrease in dangerous maneuvers. In addition, 40% fewer people stopped driving altogether and there was a 48% reduction in at-fault crashes. So the conclusion is that some brain training does work, but not all of it. People should seek out training backed by multiple peer-reviewed studies. The meta-analysis of this particular speed of processing training shows it can improve how people function in their everyday lives. The active study consisted of 2,832 participants, ages 65 to 94. The sample was 74% white and 26% African American and 76% women. And while the author uh, acknowledged the sample is certainly not at all representative of the entire U.S. population, for better or for worse, it is the first large-scale randomized trial to test the long-term outcomes of brain training effects on prevention of cognitive impairment in daily lives. <clears throat> uh, so the UFOV exercise, as it's called, was developed at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and Western Kentucky University and is exclusively licensed to Posit Science Incorporated. And I know you're going to want to take this down. I'm about to give you the information about where to find the game. It is marketed under the name Double Decision at BrainHQ.com. Again, the game is called Double Decision. And you can find it online. You uh, want to play it and see if it helps you stay sharper at brainhq, B-R-A-I-N-H-Q dot com. Uh, <clears throat> now, a lot of people may be asking, well, what about Lumosity? Uh, isn't that also proven to be effective? Well, Lumosity is very popular as one of these online memory training or memory helping games and uh, gives you a way of tracking your progress. Um, there's just not enough good evidence about other online brain training games or memory helping games to show that they are definitely effective. 
Does that mean you should stop playing it? Does that mean it's going to do harm or be a waste of your time? No, very unlikely. Um, probably the more you use your brain, the better. Um, it's just that whereas as of yet, there's no evidence to document that Lumosity or other brain training games are definitely helpful. Apparently for this one called Double Decision, there is. Uh, so, you know, you may choose to still uh, play the game at Lumosity.com if you find it helpful, but you might also want to check out Double Decision at BrainHQ.com. All right, we're going to take a commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Now we're going to talk about a study showing marijuana's long-term effects on the brain. Um, <clears throat> I know this is not necessarily the uh, popular opinion to be against the use of marijuana and the legalization and the relaxation of it, 
uh, I sound like some disgruntled old man talking about this, but, you know, nonetheless, I am going to keep pounding the drumbeat against this chemical, uh, whether that's a politically popular point of view or not. Uh, just recently, the Food and Drug Administration refused to recategorize marijuana as a Schedule II controlled drug instead of Schedule One. All of the seriously addictive and abusable drugs are categorized as controlled substances. Uh, they range from various levels of control, the strictest being Schedule One. That's um, marijuana, heroin, LSD, things like that. Schedule Two uh, include things that are used in common everyday medical practice but are strictly controlled in terms of numbers of refills and uh, how the prescriptions can be sent. So that's painkillers, narcotic painkillers like Oxycontin, and Percocet and many others, Vicodin. So includes ADHD medications which are stimulants, which are amphetamine-like drugs and the hands of someone who doesn't have ADHD, so that includes Ritalin and Adderall, Concerta, Folkland, Vyvanse, uh, etc. Uh, so marijuana is Schedule 1. A lot of people felt that it should be reclassified Schedule 2, and um, that would allow for actual medical prescribing of marijuana to treat various illnesses. Uh, there are many states, in Georgia, uh, including Georgia, where various forms of marijuana, if not marijuana itself, are allowed to be used for certain medical conditions under certain circumstances if the doctor orders it. Um, and there are certain states, uh, Colorado, Washington, uh, for example, that have legalized or decriminalized, I should say, uh, possession and use of up to certain amounts um, of marijuana. And um, so the FDA refused to reclassify it, which uh, I actually, you know, I know on this podcast I have a reputation as an inveterate FDA basher, and uh, I admit to that. I think most of the time they interfere with approving medical treatments that could help a lot of people more than that they keep us safe. But in this case, I applaud them for refusing to reclassify marijuana. Um, one negative consequence of their refusal to do so is that it still makes it very, very difficult to do research on medical marijuana, which might help to refine what conditions uh, would actually benefit from any of the chemicals um, in in marijuana um, because if it's still that tightly controlled it's, it's just hard to do research on it um, so we'll see what happens but for now that's their stance and it doesn't seem likely that it's going to change anytime soon and despite the fact that many many more states have approved marijuana for medical use and uh, so far very few, but perhaps a growing number in the future will decriminalize possession up to a certain amount and personal use. Uh, there are still 
a lot of negative consequences of use of this drug. Now, this current study comes from the Center for Brain Health, and <clears throat> basically the effects of chronic marijuana use on the brain may depend on age of first use and duration of use. The Center for Brain Health is at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, in a paper uh, published on August 10th, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, researchers for the first time comprehensively describe existing abnormalities in brain function and structure of long-term marijuana users with multiple magnetic resonance imaging techniques or MRI techniques. Findings show chronic marijuana users have smaller brain volume in the orbital frontal cortex. That is a part of the brain commonly associated with addiction, but also with increased brain connectivity. And, you know, connectivity of brain areas is associated, is, is important rather in all kinds of cognitive functions, uh, executive functions. Now, there is a steady increase in the incidence of marijuana since 2007, but research on its long-term effects remains scarce, despite the changes in legislation surrounding marijuana and the continuing conversation surrounding this relevant public health topic. The research team studied 48 adult marijuana users and 62 gender and age-matched non-users and they accounted for any potential biases among the groups such as gender, age, or ethnicity. And they also controlled for whether the subjects also smoked tobacco or used alcohol. On average, the marijuana users who participated in this study consumed the drug three times per day. So that's pretty heavy use. Um, the cognitive tests on the subjects show that chronic marijuana users had lower IQ compared to age and gender matched controls. Let me say that again. Chronic marijuana users lower IQ compared to age and gender matched controls. That is a startling finding. The differences didn't seem to be related to the brain abnormalities. You can't draw a direct correlation between lower IQ and the volume of the orbital frontal cortex. But what's unique about this work is that it combines three different MRI techniques to evaluate brain characteristics. Now, let's talk more about those. The results suggest increases increases in connectivity, both structural and functional, that may be compensation for loss of gray matter, that is destruction of the cell body or really of brain cells altogether. Eventually, however, the structural connectivity or wiring of the brain also starts degrading with prolonged marijuana use. So what they're saying is that initially you're destroying cells, 
uh, increased connectivity occurs as the brain, ever an adaptive organ, tries to compensate, but eventually even that breaks down. Tests reveal that the earlier onset of regular marijuana use induces greater structural and functional connectivity. The greatest increases in connectivity appear as an individual begins using marijuana, and the findings show the severity of use is directly correlated to greater connectivity. So again, the greater connectivity is not uh, an advantage or a benefit. It's a sign that the brain is trying to compensate uh, for destruction in brain tissue. Now, although this increased structural wiring declines after six to eight years of continued chronic use, marijuana users continue to display more intense connectivity than healthy non-users, which that might explain why chronic long-term users, quote, seem to be doing just fine, unquote, despite smaller orbital frontal cortex brain volumes. Again, the brain is a highly adaptive organ, and in, even in the face of tremendous insult, uh, finds ways to work around deficits, problems, destroyed tissue, what have you. To date, existing studies on the long-term effects of marijuana on brain structures have been largely inconclusive due to limitations in the methodologies. While this study doesn't conclusively address whether any or all of the brain changes are a direct consequence of marijuana use, these effects do suggest that these changes are related to age of onset and duration of use. The study offers a preliminary indication that gray matter, this is uh, the cell bodies, uh, the cell body includes the nucleus of the brain cell, in the orbital frontal cortex may be more vulnerable than white matter to the effects of THC, uh, which is short for delta-9-tetrahydrocannabinol, the main psychoactive ingredient in the marijuana or cannabis plant. Okay, now the white matter in contrast to the gray matter are the axons. These are the long parts of the brain cell that connect to other cells. Uh, so, whereas the gray matter is more vulnerable to THC, perhaps the white matter, which improves connectivity between brain areas, is less vulnerable. The study provides evidence that chronic marijuana use initiates a complex process that allows brain cells to adapt and compensate for smaller gray matter volume, but further studies are needed to determine whether these changes revert back to normal with discontinued marijuana use, whether similar effects are present in occasional marijuana users versus chronic users. I think that would be a very important distinction and whether these effects are indeed a direct result of marijuana use or a predisposing factor. So even though there are more questions that need to be answered, uh, I think this is quite disturbing 
and certainly at the very least for chronic marijuana users, people who use it a few times a day, day in, day out, year in, year out, um, we can now document that they're doing damage to their brain. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Next, another question that I get often in my psychiatry private practice, people who suffer from depression who have children or plan on having children someday, are justifiably concerned, is this a hereditable condition? Um, In short, am I going to wind up giving this to my kids? Well, the answer is, yes, it is heritable, but does that mean inevitably you're going to give it to your kids? No, not necessarily. Um, So there is a chance uh, that it will be passed on to your children, but again, it's not inevitable. And I tell people, rather than worry about that possibility, instead uh, turn it around and have it be a positive. That um, since you know the symptoms and the signs, if you spot it in your kids, you make sure they get help um, immediately and not delay until they get older, then they won't have to suffer like you did, and they'll be better off uh, for what you went through to figure out how to deal with your depression. So, in any case, um, this next article that I want to talk to you about caught my eye along these lines about the heredity of depression. And the article is about, is depression in parents and grandparents 
linked to grandchildren's depression. Having both parents and grandparents with major depressive disorder was associated with a higher risk of major depression for grandchildren, which could help identify those who may benefit from early intervention, according to a study published online by Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry. Now, this is key, early intervention. You already know that someone's at risk because their parents and grandparents had it. So rather than wait for depression to develop and do something about it, as I was mentioning before, intervene beforehand and maybe you can prevent it. What a concept, actual prevention of illness. Okay, now it is well known that having depressed parents increases children's risk of psychiatric disorders. There are no published studies of depression examining three generations with grandchildren in the age of risk for depression, and that included direct interviews of all family members. So researchers at Columbia University in the New York State Psychiatric Institute studied 251 grandchildren uh, whose average age was 18 and interviewed them an average of two times and their biological parents who were interviewed an average of nearly five times and grandparents interviewed up to 30 years. Now when first comparing two generations, the study suggests grandchildren with depressed parents had twice the risk of major depressive disorder compared with non-depressed parents as well as increased risk for disruptive disorder or substance dependence, suicidal thinking or suicidal behavior, and poor functioning mentally in general. Comparing three generations, the authors report grandchildren with both a depressed parent and depressed grandparent had three times the risk of major depression. Children without a depressed grandparent but with a depressed parent had overall worse functioning than children without a depressed parent. Now, limitations of the study include small sample size, 251. Sounds like a lot, but a really much, much larger sample size would have generated more meaningful data. And then there's also the potential lack of generalizability uh, because of the makeup of the study subjects. But in this study, biological offspring with two previous generations affected with major depression were at higher risk for major depression, suggesting determining the family history of depression in children, the value of making such determination uh, in children and adolescents beyond the two generations. Early intervention in the offspring of two generations affected with moderate to severely impairing major depressive disorder seems warranted.
Well, that's very interesting, but you may be asking the question, well, what would that early intervention consist of? What would you do even if you decided, okay, uh, this kid's got two early generations of major depression in their history, so we need to do something before then. Well, the article doesn't go into that, but certainly as far as any early intervention to stave off the onset of depression later in life would include getting a kid involved in taking good care of themselves, healthy eating habits, regular exercise, uh, and regular involvement in uh, activities with their peers. Uh, if early on they showed uh, impaired social skills, their social skills training, uh, if early on they had problems in school, intervene with that. In, in short, uh, to make sure that a kid was functioning in all the normal domains that you want them to, academically and socially. Um, and if any deficits are found, to um, sort of gird them against those deficits, causing them problems as they grow up, which then could lead to depression. So there still is need for concern uh, about the heredity of depression. And again, uh, I think the take-home message of this particular study is if you already know that you and your parents had depression um, and you're going to have kids or you have young kids, um, it's time to think about what can be done to prevent them from getting depression in the first place and there's a strong likelihood that you won't have to worry that your kids are going to get your depression from you. Um, so I, I see that as a hopeful message, I, um, absolutely. All right, now next on Psychiatry Today, I have a stress in the workplace update for you. Uh, this article is about burnout in the workplace. Um, unfortunately, I'm sure that's something many of you out there can uh, relate to, which is a shame, but it's the reality. So, in any case, let's talk about what was found. Um, this new research shows that burnout is caused by a mismatch between a person's unconscious needs and the opportunities and demands at the workplace. And these results, they say, have implications for the prevention of job burnout. Imagine, for example, an accountant who is outgoing and seeks closeness in her social relationships, but whose job offers little scope for contact with colleagues or clients. Now imagine another example, a manager required to take responsibility for a team, but who does not enjoy taking center stage or being in a leadership role. For both of these examples, there is therefore a mismatch between their individual needs and the opportunities and demands of them at the workplace. A new study in the open access journal Frontiers in Psychology shows that such mismatches put employees at risk 
of burnout. Burnout, the authors describe, is a state of physical, emotional, and mental exhaustion from work, which results in a lack of motivation, low efficiency, and a helpless feeling. Its health effects include anxiety, cardiovascular disease, immune disorders, insomnia, and depression. The financial burden from absenteeism, employee turnover, reduced productivity, and medical, legal, and insurance expenses due to burnout and general work-related stress is staggering. For example, the American Institute of Stress, yes, there is such an organization, estimates the total cost to American enterprises at $300 billion per year, while a 2012 study commissioned by the health program of the European Union estimates the annual cost to the EU enterprises at 272 billion euro. In this new study, researchers show that the unconscious needs of employees, their so-called implicit motives, play an important role in the development of burnout. The researchers focus on two important motives. The power motive, that is, the need to take responsibility for others, maintain discipline, and engage in arguments or negotiation in order to feel strong and self-efficacious. And the affiliation motive, the need for positive personal relations in order to feel trust, warmth, and belonging. A mismatch between job characteristics and either implicit motive can cause burnout, the results show. Moreover, a mismatch in either direction is risky. Employees can get burned out when they have too much or not enough scope for power or affiliation compared to their individual needs. They found that the frustration of unconscious affective needs caused by a lack of opportunities for motive-driven behavior is detrimental to psychological and physical well-being. The same is true for goal-striving that doesn't match a well-developed implicit motive for power or affiliation, because then excessive effort is necessary to achieve that goal. All right. Well, we're going to talk more about how burnout develops in situations like this and perhaps what can be done about it and other mental health news right after this break. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing 
have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with you, giving you the latest mental health-related news. And again, we have a stress in the workplace update for tonight's podcast, talking about how burnout is caused. Researchers find a mismatch between the unconscious needs of the worker and the job demands is what can lead to burnout. Now, um, They recruited 97 women and men between the ages of 22 and 62 through the Swiss burnout website. How about that? The Swiss have a website dedicated to job burnout. It's an information resource and a forum for Swiss people suffering from burnout. How about that? Maybe we do have something like that here in the States. I don't know. Anyway, participants completed questionnaires about their physical well-being, their degree of burnout, and the characteristics of their job, including its opportunities and demands. To assess their implicit motives, whose strength varies from person to person, but which can't be measured directly through self-reports since they are mostly unconscious, researchers used an inventive method. They asked the participants to write imaginative short stories to describe five pictures, which showed an architect, trapeze artists, women in a laboratory, a boxer, and a nightclub scene. Each story was analyzed by trained coders who looked for sentences about positive personal relations between persons, thus expressing the affiliation motive or uh, they looked for uh, sentences about persons having an impact or influence on others expressing the power motive. Participants who used many such sentences in their story received a higher score for the corresponding implicit motive. Again, um, 
whether there was a mismatch between the power motive and the demands and opportunities for the job or the affiliation motive uh, and uh, the demands and opportunities in the job. Either way, um, either form of mismatch can lead to hidden stressors and cause burnout. Now, um, the greater the mismatch between someone's affiliation motive and the scope for personal relations at the job, the higher the risk of burnout, not surprisingly. Likewise, adverse physical symptoms such as headache, chest pain, uh, faintness, and shortness of breath became more common with increasing mismatch between employees' power motive and the scope for power in his or her job. Importantly, these results immediately suggest that interventions that prevent or repair such mismatches could increase well-being at work and reduce the risk of burnout. A starting point could be to select job applicants in such a way that their implicit motives match the characteristics of the open position. Another strategy could be so-called job crafting, where employees proactively try to enrich their job in order to meet their individual needs. For example, an employee with a strong affiliation motive might handle his or her duties in a more collaborative way and try to find ways to do more teamwork. A motivated workforce is the key to success in today's globalized economy, requiring innovative approaches that go beyond providing attractive working conditions. Matching employees' motivational needs to their daily activities at work might be the way forward. This may also help to address growing concerns about employee mental health, since burnout is essentially an erosion of motivation. To do so, this re uh, requires increasingly taking account of motivational patterns in the context of occupational stress research and studying person-environment fit across entire organizations and industries. Well, uh, until that becomes a widespread practice, perhaps you as an individual can do an evaluation. You know, what, what are your motives implicitly and intrinsically, and how do they match up with the duties and demands and conditions of your work? Uh, are you more likely to have social or affiliative motivations? Um, and does your job allow for that? Or are you more likely to have um, power-associated motivation where you want to be in a position to uh, help others? And does your job allow for that? And if you don't see a good match between motives and what you're doing, that may be why you're feeling 
a large degree of burnout. And you may want to consider either crafting your own job, in other words, trying to find ways in which you can channel those motives and still do your job, or look for something else. Easier said than done. All right. Well, next up on psychiatry today, let's turn our attention to the little understood and oft uh, misunderstood phenomenon of hypnosis. A study finds that brain areas are altered during hypnotic trances and identifies these areas. Uh, the article starts off acknowledging the inaccurate stereotypes of uh, hypnosis and actually throughout the article addresses those. Your eyelids are getting heavy, your arms are going limp, and you feel like you're floating through space. The power of hypnosis to alter your mind and body like this is all thanks to changes in a few specific areas of the brain. This according to discoveries by scientists at Stanford University School of Medicine. They scanned the brains of 57 people during guided hypnosis sessions similar to those that might be used clinically to treat anxiety, pain, or trauma. Distinct sections of the brain have altered activity and connectivity while someone is hypnotized. These scientists report in a study that was published on July 28th in the journal Cerebral Cortex. Now that they know which brain regions are involved, they may be able to use this knowledge to alter someone's capacity to be hypnotized or the effectiveness of hypnosis for problems such as pain control. It is the case that not everyone is hypnotizable. This is an innate characteristic uh, that until now uh, no one thought of could be modified. It was thought that, well, you're either hypnotizable or you're not. Now, for some, hypnosis is associated with loss of control or stage tricks. Uh, but, of course, nothing could be farther from the truth. Doctors know it to be a serious science revealing the brain's ability to heal medical and psychiatric conditions. Hypnosis is the oldest Western form of psychotherapy, but it's been tarred with the brush of dangling watches and purple capes. In fact, it's a very powerful means of changing the way we use our minds to control perception in our bodies. Despite a growing appreciation of the clinical potential of hypnosis, Little is known about how it works at a physiological level. Researchers have previously scanned the brains of people undergoing hypnosis. Those studies have been designed to pinpoint the effects of hypnosis on pain, vision, and other forms of perception, and not the state of hypnosis itself. There had not been any studies in which the goal was to simply ask what's going on in the brain when you're hypnotized. To study hypnosis itself, researchers first had to find people who could or couldn't be hypnotized. Only about 10% of the population is generally categorized as highly hypnotizable, while others are less able to enter this trance-like state. So researchers screened 545 healthy participants 
and found 36 people consistently scored high on tests of hypnotizability, as well as 21 control subjects who scored on the low end of the scale. Then they looked at the brains of 57 of those using functional MRI imaging, which measures brain activity, and each person was scanned under four conditions, while resting, recalling a memory, and during two different hypnosis sessions. It was important to have the people who weren't able to be hypnotized as controls. Otherwise, you might see things happening in the brains of those being hypnotized, but you wouldn't be sure whether it was associated with hypnosis or not. They discovered three hallmarks of the brain under hypnosis. Each change was seen only in the highly hypnotizable group and only while they were undergoing hypnosis. First, less activity in the dorsal anterior cingulate part of the brain's salience network. You're so absorbed that you're not worrying about anything else in this area. And then an increase in connections between the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the insula. This is a brain-body connection, helps the brain process and control what's going on in the body. And then reduced connections between the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the default mode network, which includes the medial prefrontal and posterior cingulate cortex. This decrease in functional connectivity represents a disconnect between actions and awareness of actions. When you're really engaged in something, you don't really think about it, you just do it. During hypnosis, this dissociation between action and reflection allows you to engage in activities suggested by a clinician or self-suggested without devoting mental resource to being self-conscious about the activity. Now, if you're hypnotizable, this can be effective in lessening chronic pain, pain of childbirth and other medical procedures, treating smoking addiction, PTSD, anxiety, or phobias. So this might pave the way toward developing treatments, including treating pain without drugs. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.